Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, novelist Louise Doty talks about her latest book, the literary thriller Blackwater. Louise Doughty is the author of seven novels, including Apple Tree Yard, which was a top ten bestseller in the UK and Ireland, and has been published, or is being translated, into 27 languages. It was long-listed for The Guardian, not the Booker Prize, and short-listed for the CWA Steel Dagger Awards and the National Book Awards Thriller of the Year. Her previous novel, Whatever You Love, was shortlisted for the Costa Novel Award and longlisted for the Orange Prize for Fiction. And today we're going to be talking about Louise's latest book, which is Blackwater. Louise, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you. Describe to me what the story of this book is. What's it about? Well, Blackwater is about a man called John Harper. And as the novel opens, we find him in a hut halfway up a hillside in rural Bali. We know he's in hiding. It's the middle of the night and he's lying awake and he's mortally afraid. Uh, We know that the year is 1998, which is the year that the Suharto regime fell Mm -hmm. in Indonesia. And we know that his past is mysterious. But other than that, we don't really know who he is and we don't really know what he's afraid of. He says that he thinks that men with machetes are going to come and kill him. Mm -hmm. But what quickly becomes apparent is that what John Harper is afraid of is not something that is going to happen. What he's really afraid of is something that he himself has done. There's a dark secret in his past. And then the rest of the book is a process of finding out what that dark secret is. I said, how would, you, how would you describe what the story is? How would you describe what the book is? Because you've sort of almost by default become a writer of thrillers. And indeed, I mentioned a couple of those long listings and prizes. But, I mean, without damning thrillers, I think this is better than a thriller. It's, it's more of a literary thriller, if there's such a thing. Well, I, I like the term literary thriller. I think, um, I think that just means I'm greedy. Mm. I think it means I want both the best of both worlds. I want the praise and the short listings for prizes. And I also want the huge sales. I think the interesting thing to remember about categories is that for authors, when you're actually thinking up a story, they're meaningless, really, mm-hmm. unless you work at the sort of extreme end of a genre, um, you're writing to order, like a, a Mills and Boone or a, a procedural crime where you're writing very, very firmly in genre, or unless you're writing very experimental fiction where you're writing something that's very 
definitely literary. Those are just the sort of 10% of books either end, but I think the vast majority of us in between, as writers, we're just trying to tell the story we want to tell to the best of our ability. And then we hand that story over to the publishers, and it's the publisher's job to put a label on it. Mm -hmm. And the label which Faber, my publisher, have put on me is literary thriller, and I have to say they've been very successful at it. Certainly when I went to Faber with Whatever You Love, my sixth novel, it sold very well. Apple Tree Yard sold better. Some people called it crime because it had a courtroom in it. I actually thought it was a feminist indictment of criminal justice, but hey, I seem to get away with it. And Blackwater, people are comparing it with John le Carre or Mm. with Graham Greene. I'm very happy with those comparisons. Graham Greene's one of my favourite writers. He was also a writer who at some times in his career was if you like, almost told off for being too populist, Mm -hmm. for writing entertainments was the word he used about his own books. I don't think there's any doubt about his literary greatness. I think he is a writer who has it both ways. And I'm perfectly happy to be in that kind of category, if you like, to be talked of in thrillerish terms. If it gets me more readers, I'm more than happy. But I'm not self-consciously aiming to be in any kind of category. Mm -hmm. And obviously, I'm very pleased that you think it's more literary than a lot of thrillers are. And you mentioned those writers, and I would have certainly mentioned Graham Greene. Were those writers in your mind when you were writing this book? I mean, what, what writers were an influence on it? Well, obviously, I knew that the minute I had a story of a man in a difficult situation abroad in a hot, a tropical country those kind of associations are going Mm -hmm. to arise with Graham Greene, with Conrad. And they were in my mind in the sense of I was, if you like, slightly trying to write an antidote to some of those Mm -hmm. books in that what those stories very often are are the stories of a white man in a tropical country that he's finding threatening and strange and Mm -hmm. exotic. And I don't want to write that kind of novel. We've had a lot of those kind of novels and I think the world has moved on from those kind of colonial era books. At the same time... I knew that I didn't have enough life experience to write this story from the point of view of an Indonesian. Mm -hmm. Um, I've only been to Indonesia three times. I think you need to live in a country for years and years to be able to do that. I think you can do it as an outsider, Mm -hmm. but it's a very hard thing. So the solution I came up with is Harper is mixed race. He has a father who is an Indonesian officer uh, who fought in the Dutch colonial army against the Japanese in the Second World War, and in fact his father is beheaded by the Japanese. And his mother, while she is pregnant with him, she's a white Dutch young woman, and she's interned in a, a Japanese camp because she's Dutch. And Harper himself is actually born in the camp. After the Second World War, he and his mother go back to the Netherlands and she finds that she's denied an army widow's pension because her husband was Indonesian, he was Mm -hmm. brown, and that did happen in real life. The women who had Indonesian husbands didn't get the pensions. So she and Harper end up emigrating to California and she marries a black GI um, who was fought in Europe during the Second World War. Mm -hmm. So he ends up with a black stepfather and uh, mixed-race half-brother. And there's a section of the book set in Los Angeles at the height of the Civil Rights Movement Mm -hmm. in 1950. So really what I... It is a book about race, and it's a book about being mixed race. And what I was trying to create was a character who is a chameleon. When he's in the Netherlands, he's bullied for being black. When he lives in California and goes to a mostly black school, the boys there think he's Japanese. Mm -hmm. It's after Pearl Harbor. He's bullied for being Japanese, even though he's not. His father was beheaded by them. And then when he goes back into Indonesia in the 1960s, when he's sent there by his firm, they think of him as white. And there's actually a line in the book. The further east he goes, the whiter he gets. The whiter his skin gets, yeah. And I think that I was very interested in exploring this idea of a man who is an outsider wherever he goes, Mm -hmm. but who can, conversely 
manage to fit in wherever he goes. He has a different cover story for whatever country he's in. At one point in Jakarta, downtown Jakarta, he pretends to be Italian. Mm -hmm. Everyone likes Italians, he says. And to create a character who is an outsider everywhere he goes, I think is a, a fantastic opportunity for a writer because outsiders are always observers and I think writers are outsiders mm -hmm. you know that's why we become writers in the first place every writer I know has something odd about them that makes them feel like an outsider if, even if it's not that obvious so once I had created that character I found that he, he was a gift really um, to see the world through his eyes it was, it was a very interesting thing to mm -hmm. explore and we'll get more in depth into the two main characters a little later on. But what you to go back to what you just said about you know this being compared to those other novels because the protagonist is a man. It struck me that that was also a departure for yourself as well. And Rita, the character he falls in love with, could quite easily have been the protagonist of this novel. A you know a woman who's got a mysterious tragedy in her past as well. She's running away to the other side of the world. She meets a mysterious man. That could have been the story of this novel. Yes, it could. And in fact, at one point, I did consider should Blackwater be a dual narrative mm -hmm. where we have Harper's history and what makes him an outsider and then Rita's history and what makes her an outsider. I did think about that a lot. It would have been a different novel mm -hmm. if I'd done that. Half of me is tempted. Actually, now you've suggested it. You know, maybe I should re I want, read I want the whole I want, novel. I want to hear Rita's, Rita's story. Rita's story. <laughs> yeah, maybe I should. Um, I was very definite that Blackwater was Harper's story. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the issue for me was that Harper's story on its own is such a big story. I mean, we're talking about a story that spans the great political events of the second mm -hmm. half of the 20th century from a global canvas. Yeah. It begins in 1942, it ends in 1998. We're talking about sort of 50 years of world history to cover. So really, it would have been an awfully big book if I'd done Rita's story as well. But yeah, I think you might have a point, actually. Maybe there's a separate novel in there about her. I'm Kate Hamer. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Let's go back to where the seed of this book came from then. So why this book? Well, I got the idea when I visited Indonesia myself back in 2012. I was a guest at the Ubud Writers and Readers Festival on Bali, and I'd never been to Indonesia before. I knew nothing about it. And I started to read up about the history of the country before I left and while I was there. And really, I was just horrified at my own ignorance. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is the fourth most populous nation on the planet. It's an enormous country, this great spread of 17,000 islands, incredibly diverse, hundreds of different ethnic groups, hundreds of different languages spoken. It's the largest archipelago in the mm -hmm. world. It's a hugely important nation, economically, politically. And yet people in the West know virtually nothing about it, certainly people in Britain. And I think there are several reasons for that. I mean, firstly, the fact that the UK never colonised it, and obviously we always have a, a mm -hmm. closer connection with countries that we've colonised, but also that there isn't really a significant Indonesian diaspora in this country. In fact, there aren't huge-scale um, diasporas of Indonesian people in a lot of other countries. I mean, for the same reason, I think because it was only colonised by Holland, so you have that there is a certain connection in the Netherlands. So in that sense, it doesn't really have a place in the Western imagination. Mm -hmm. And that seemed to me that we were missing out because of that, because I use we in the broadest sense here, people who live in the UK and America, because 
It is so complex and so fascinating. And also, it played a crucial part in the Cold War in Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows about what happened in Vietnam, but very few people know about what happened politically in Indonesia and the CIA's involvement in the events of 1965. You do say in the acknowledgments of this book, you know, thank you to the, you know, to the people who were so hospitable to me at this literary festival. It's not a book that particularly makes me want to go on holiday to Bali, though, I must say. Well, that's a shame, because I can take your point. Obviously, it's talking about the darkest things in Balinese history, but I hope what I also get over is the incredible physical beauty Mm, of the country. And in many ways, that was why I fell for the country, both sort of intellectually and emotionally, because just that striking contrast between somewhere which is so physically breathtakingly beautiful and yet... 50 years ago, some truly dreadful things happened there. And of course, sadly, that is true of many beautiful countries in the world. And that kind of dichotomy, you know, in the West, particularly in Northern Europe, we associate sun, sand, beaches, seaside, with all the good things in life, Mm -hmm. with leisure, with holidays, with wealth, because you can only go there if you're wealthy. Mm -hmm. And yet, of course, for people who actually grow up in these countries, it's, it's really not that straightforward. And they have their own political history to deal with. And trying to acknowledge that and also trying to acknowledge the role of Western tourism in developing economies. I think that a lot of uh, very well-meaning liberal people know about the issues of oil companies or other extractive industries Mm -hmm. going to developing countries and taking all that wealth from developing countries. But there is also a moral dilemma over tourism. It's one thing to go to a country and be very respectful in the temples, Mm -hmm. but actually you go home and you drive your car driven by the petrol by the same oil companies that are doing the things that you Mm criticise. And I think there's a very strong moral dilemma here that a lot of people in the West don't really address. So tell us something of that background then. So the the main events of the book are set in 1965, which is uh, when the dictator Suharto comes to power, and there's basically a purging of communists in the country. Yes, I mean, that was one of the most enormous tragedies, one of the, the great massacres of the second half of the 20th century. It ranks alongside the killings, Pol Pot killings mm-hmm. in Cambodia in the 1970s, the massacres in Rwanda that we all know about. And yet in comparison with those two great tragedies, nobody knows anything mm-hmm. about what happened in Indonesia. And really, um, to simplify a very complex story, what happened is the first independence leader, Sukarno, became gradually more and more leftist in the eyes of the West. He was the big new first leader of the independence. The Communist Party, the PKI, grew in influence throughout the 50s. And um, Sukarno wasn't part of the PKI, but people in the West began to feel that he was getting too close to the PKI. Um, The Indonesian Communist Party at that time, it had over three million members. It was the largest communist party outside China or the Soviet bloc. Mm. So the CIA and the Western powers were absolutely desperate that Indonesia should not become a communist country, as they were in Vietnam. They were desperate for Southeast Asia not to become the next communist bloc. So the CIA actually attempted to kill Sukarno in the 1950s unsuccessfully. Then there was a a still very hotly debated attempted coup on the Mm. night of 30th of September 1965, where a group of people kidnapped a group of leading army generals and tortured and killed them and threw their bodies down a well. This coup was very, very rapidly defeated by the military. Now, Some people believe that the coup was instigated by the CIA Mm. as an excuse for the military to take over. Other people say, no, it was a genuine attempted coup by the communists. Whichever of those is true, there then followed a massive anti-communist purge. 
And what is known, what is a matter of historical fact, is that the CIA provided the Indonesian military command with a list of 5,000 names of communists or suspected communists, and those people were arrested and mostly tortured Mm -hmm. and killed. So the CIA were definitely involved in the provision of names. Um, My character, Harper, is a courier, and he's one of the people who takes one of those lists of names from a CIA contact at the American embassy and hands it over to a general. Now, his role is invented. I don't know how those lists physically got from the American embassy to the Indonesian military high command, but there's no doubt they were provided. The really tragic thing, I think, about the killings is that a lot of them were, as they were in Rwanda, neighbour-on-neighbour killings. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, uh, there was a huge amount of anti-communist propaganda began. You know, the communist traitors are going to destroy our way of life, the communist traitors will take away your land, the communist traitors are responsible for all the evils, there were lots of broadcasts, lots of newspaper reports. And also the idea that if your name is on those lists, one of those way, one of the ways in which you can save yourself and your family is to betray somebody else. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, I'm not a communist, but he is, my neighbour is. And so when the militias began the killings, a lot of people were named by neighbours or indeed killed by neighbours. And that is, of course, the appalling thing about the breakdown of civil society mm-hmm. is the military powers may instigate killings and we see this throughout human history but actually if a society is broken enough then you get neighbour on neighbour killings and that's what happened and the figures are again very debatable anything between half a million and a million people were killed. And then of course what happens then once that all dies down is all of those survivors are left with the aftermath and then perhaps another one of the reasons why it's not so well known in the West as some of the other similar incidents, is there's not really been that period of reconciliation and coming to terms with it, has there? No, that's absolutely right. I mean, Suharto, who came to power at this time, uh, he stayed in power for 32 years. And so there was no truth and reconciliation process. Um, You would not say, if you worked in the civil service, my father was killed during the purges of 1965, you'd probably lose your job if you did. A lot of people were also put in prison. Um, Borough Island, an infamous prison island, Mm -hmm. held thousands, tens of thousands of political prisoners uh, that stayed in jail right through the 70s into the 80s. And it wasn't really until the Asian economic crisis of 1997 that the Suharto regime began to fall Mm -hmm. and began to crumble. But even during the riots of 1998, there was a huge incident called the Trisakti incident where the army shot dead five or six students at a university who were protesting against the Suharto regime. Even at that point, many people thought that Suharto would never resign, that he would have the army on the streets massacring their own people before he resigned. It was Mm -hmm. actually a terrific surprise when he did finally hand over the reins of power. So... You have 32 years of a climate of fear and, you know, no real free speech, during which um, the US and the UK and many Western countries poured economic aid, advisers, arms Mm -hmm. into the Suharto regime. Then you're absolutely right. You don't get truth and reconciliation. And I think Indonesia is really slowly emerging from that period. And it has to be said that freedom of speech is still provisional in Indonesia. And a lot of people are concerned about the way things might go. It is a functioning Mm -hmm. democracy. There are free magazines, free press, outspoken people, a lot of very brave writers and thinkers, but it is tentative. It is by no means assured. So bearing that in mind, I mean, it must be, although you've said there are people that speak, it must be very difficult for most people to talk about that period of time still. So how did you go about researching this? Did you get to speak to anybody? With a great deal of care is the answer. 
I tried mm-hmm. <laughs> and I got a lot of blank faces and all of the Indonesian people I've met are exquisitely polite and hospitable but for very obvious reasons a wall comes down if mm-hmm. you start questioning particularly older people who remember the Sahara regime very clearly younger people younger writers I think are much more keen to speak but you know we're talking about a very terrible time in living memory and also I think as a writer you can't kind of charge into a country like a bull in a china mm-hmm. shop and say give me all your precious and possibly dangerous stories and I'll run away with them so one my visits to India Indonesia, mostly what I did was I was going for atmosphere for the sights, the smells, the sounds, mm-hmm. you know, the level of description that you can't possibly get just by sitting at home and looking at pictures on the internet. But most of my factual research about the massacres was done online or sociological texts, historical record, that kind of thing. I think that the personal testimonies of people who went through that time, I mean, Indonesian writers, Pramodia Anantatur, the most famous writer, has written a, a wonderful memoir, Mute Soliloquy, about the time he spent on Burrow Island. Those authentic stories belong to Indonesian writers themselves. And I would say to anybody who wants those stories, go to those Indonesian writers, you know, read Pramodia, uh, read Laksmi Pamuncak, read Leila mm. S. Chaudhuri, you know, read Gunawan Mohammed. go to the Indonesian voices. I'm an outsider writing a story about an outsider, and you're only going to get a partial view from somebody like me. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Into Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Louise Doty and we're talking about her book Black Water. And Louise, let's talk about John Harper then. I want to talk about both John and Rita, but we'll start with John. So tell us tell us again who he is. 
Well, John Harper is born in 1942 in a Japanese internment camp on the island of Sulawesi in Indonesia. He's mixed race. He has an Indonesian father who is killed when Mm -hmm. he's fighting for the Dutch colonial army, as many of the Indonesian officers did. And his mother is imprisoned by the Japanese. She's a white Dutch woman, a very young woman, and she's pregnant with Harper when she's imprisoned and gives birth to him in the camp. At the end of the war, they go back to the Netherlands and she finds that she's denied a Dutch army pension. Uh, which is what happened to the widows of the Indonesian officers because Mm -hmm. their husbands were brown. They didn't get the widow's pension. And so a few years later, she ends up emigrating to California where she meets a black GI and marries him. And so Harper then joins this kind of rainbow family. He has a black stepfather and a mixed-race half-brother. And he also has a grandfather figure who's a leading lawyer in the civil rights Mm -hmm. movement in Los Angeles in the 1950s. And he has a few years there where he knows some kindness and stability. But after a few years, there's a family tragedy, which I won't give away, Mm -hmm. and he ends up going back to the Netherlands with his mother and spending his adolescence in post-war Europe, um, kind of very cold, (laughs) dank Netherlands at the time, and doing his military service, and then joining a company of what we would nowadays call security consultants Mm -hmm. or risk analysts, a private company that works for international corporations and governments, basically doing the jobs that spies are not allowed to do. Mm -hmm. Because of his background, he is sent into Indonesia in 1965, which was a calamitous time in Indonesian history with the rise of the PKI, the Communist Party, and the impending coup um, against Sukarno and the military leader Suharto comes to power. So he's sent into Indonesia because he's mixed race. Uh, I think his company rather naively assume he'll be able to pick up the language pretty quickly. Of course, it's never that simple, although he does pick up some Indonesian. His Javanese always remains shaky. He ends up taking part in the massacres of 1965 in a way that I won't give away. But following that, he essentially has a breakdown and goes back and spends the next three decades of his life in a desk job Mm -hmm. uh, in Amsterdam, Then when the Suharto regime is crumbling, he is persuaded to go back to Indonesia for the fall of the regime. And that is when the ghosts of his past come to get him. And you mentioned he's a courier in Indonesia and that that role itself that you made up. But obviously, as you've also just pointed out, those companies do exist. And it is a a strange and secretive world. So how are you able to get a sort of grasp on that? Well, not only can I not tell you which company I interviewed, I interviewed them them in London and Jakarta, I can't even tell you how I got my contact with them. (laughs) That's how how secretive I have to be, and that was a condition of them helping me, Mm -hmm. um, that I I should be absolutely secretive about it. All I will say is the company I spoke to is one of the most reputable companies in this field. They have thousands of employees worldwide, and they've existed um, for several decades. But, of course, there are a lot of companies in this field who are not so reputable. Mm -hmm. I mean, anybody can set up a security consultant firm or a bodyguard firm, whatever they want to call Mm -hmm. it. And it's a very unregulated field. Private security is used all Mm -hmm. over the world. I think most people know that private security is used by, for instance oil companies Mm -hmm. or a mining company or everybody knows that you have security guards in shopping centres and people expect mining companies in developing countries to have security guards. I think fewer people are aware that these companies are also used by national governments. Mm -hmm. And of course, as a private company, they're not subject to the same oversight, the same scrutiny, the same rules. We saw that private contractors were used in Iraq Mm -hmm. to defend 
US government officials. The US ambassador in Iraq at the end of the war was being protected by private security. Now, though the people who work for those private security firms, a lot of them are ex-soldiers, some of them are ex-security guards from shopping centres, they're not subject to court-martial, they're not subject to the same rules as the military. And I think, obviously, that's something, that's an extreme example, but that's something we should all be concerned about. You mentioned the time he spends living in Los Angeles, um, and his his grandfather figure is this civil rights lawyer. So inevitably he's living in quite a middle-class background, but nonetheless with a black family. What would have that been like in the 1950s? Well, it was certainly quite unusual, but I was very definite that in creating this black family in Los Angeles in the 1950s, I can't bear it when, you know, you have to sort of ghettoise a family just because mm-hmm. they're black. It's ridiculous. There was a strong, growing and very hard-working black middle class, some people working in the music industry or the entertainment industry, it being California, but many, you know, new, a new sort of rising breed of educated black people who were fundamental in the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. I mean, Martin Luther King is only the obvious example, but I really can't bear kind of sort of white saviour literature and look the eye, this sort of Mississippi burning idea that somehow, you know, the white hero rides into town mm-hmm. and sort of, you know, black people in that time played a huge and important and vital role in their own liberation. So I was absolutely determined that it would be a middle-class family and the character of Popper, um, his grandfather, is a very highly educated lawyer working extremely hard. He is, if you like, the kind of moral centre of the book and this is a book that needed a moral centre. This is a book in which a lot of sort of dark and very difficult Mm -hmm. and morally ambiguous things happen. And it needed one character who was, if you like, the font of goodness. I mean, obviously, if you create a character who's a font of goodness, you have a slight problem because you've got to make them realistic Mm -hmm. and you've got to give them their own ambiguities. Um, And certainly Popper could be accused of somewhat neglecting his own family. But he is essentially a very good man and he's the one who shows Harper that there are decent and brave and true ways of living. Mm -hmm. And it's a lesson that Harper loses for many decades, but I don't think it's one he he ever forgets. Harper's mother, as you've you've already mentioned, has suffered terribly. The description of her giving birth to him is an incredibly strong scene. Um, And she, of course, again, could have been painted as as an angel and yet she's she's awful she's pretty awful isn't she i mean she's you know she becomes an alcoholic she spends a whole life throwing herself at married men because they're easy um well i thought that was really refreshing is yeah. what i was going to say that you didn't have to paint someone who had suffered so badly in, no. in such a good i mean the truth is that uh, there's nothing about your own suffering that means you're going to be a morally good person in fact you could argue the converse is true what annika is is she's the classic example of well she's a narcissist really she's a woman who as popper says who believes that that because of the bad things that have happened to her, she's not accountable for the harm she does mm-hmm. other people. She goes her whole life crashing around, causing terrible harm in other people's lives. She is simply not morally accountable for what she does. And in actual fact, in many ways, she destroys Harper. I think she is responsible for the deepest traumas in Mm -hmm. Harper's life, the way she crashes around having one husband after another, dragging him from one country to the next. But she never actually believes that she should be held account to any of that Mm -hmm. because of what a tough start she had. And I suppose in some ways I was addressing the reader then because Mm -hmm. I think we all like to believe that we're good people (laughs) and... We all have a tendency, it's a very human tendency, Mm -hmm. to excuse our own bad behaviour 
by the bad things that have happened to us. But of course, there isn't a moral connection between those two. We are all accountable for what we do. I'm Ben Ferguson, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. So let's talk about Rita. So we've been talking about this book as a a thriller, for want of a better word, a spy novel, even though it's not a spy novel. But at the centre of this novel is a romance. And in some respects, unusually, it's a, a middle-aged romance. I'm very hot on middle-aged romance. The fact that I'm 52, that's completely coincidental. Um, no, I mean, come on, he couldn't have fallen in love with a younger woman. That would have been the most appalling cliche. I mean, my previous novel, Apple Tree Yard, had two middle-aged people having mm-hmm. an affair as well. What I was interested in exploring with the relationship between Harper and Rita is the idea that if you meet somebody when you're in your 50s, let's face it, you have an awful lot of baggage. Mm -hmm. Nobody gets to their 50s without bringing a huge amount of baggage with them. So when you meet somebody, what do you do? Do you sort of start from kind of year zero? Do you sort of reset your personal clock and just say, okay, I'm going to leave behind my own personal history, any baggage, and it's all going to be about what happens between me and this individual? I think a lot of us like to believe that's possible, but of course we can't. We can't put that all down. And if you're middle-aged and you meet somebody, to what extent are you obliged to share yourself and your past with them in order to create a kind of true and authentic connection? And to what extent can you just edit your own past and leave, leave the bad stuff out? Because obviously you want to present yourself as best. And it is actually Rita pressing Harper that leads to the ghosts of his past spilling out of him. I mean, she says to him at one point when he loses his temper, she says, John, what happened to you? She knows that there's something going on there that explains the way this man, his cynicism and his fear. And really the whole of the middle section of the book, part two, is his answer to that question. She says, what happened to you? And we then go back in time to his birth in 1942 and we find out about his childhood and his youth but actually what we also find out later in the novel is he doesn't tell her everything no, he indeed. doesn't tell her the truly terrible thing that he did we only find that out really at the very end of the novel and I think he's selective in what he's telling her but also I think it's interesting that his Harper's relationship with Rita is very selfish like he thinks about her he realises that she has got this past as well. But in some respects, rather than that being a concern of his, he's like it's just a reassurance to him that he can still read people. Yes, but also, although he does have that selfish reaction initially, I think he does genuinely think, should I leave this woman alone because if I'm right <laughs> about the men machetes coming to kill me, I might be endangering her. And The issue of whether or not he can stay with Rita and go forward with her and have a relationship revolves very much around, is he right about that or is he paranoid? Because if he runs away from Rita and he's only being paranoid, then he's giving up his one chance of happiness later in life. But if he stays with her, is he risking her safety? And beyond that, even if he isn't risking her safety... He is risking giving her the burden of himself. He knows that he's a damaged man. And I think he knows in his heart of hearts that if he tells her the whole truth, he says at one point it would be like handing her a severed head in a bedsheet. Mm-hmm. You know, if I stay with this woman, who is a good and kind woman, who will ask me questions, who will prompt me, who will want to know why I'm damaged, I will end up telling her this terrible thing. And, and why, why lay that on her? So he's a man who's presented with a real dilemma. Is he kind of fit for Rita? 
Or should he sacrifice his own chance of happiness and just leave well alone and just run away as fast as he can for her sake? Well, that's that's a good point, though, because we haven't mentioned that he also has a wife back in Holland that he's only very recently left, or at least run away from. And as she points out to him as he's pretty much walking out the door, you always just run away from your own problems. So while it's we can look at that and say that he's talking to Rita and thinking, well, I could get a... I could get her into trouble if if this is really true. At the same time, he's just got one eye on the door. He has. He's always a man who's got one eye on the door. He always wants to know where the escape route is. And of course, as as his wife says to him, you know, you can't you can't run away from yourself. You know, how are you going to feel when you know you can just stare at yourself in the mirror? <laughs> and you know, he's in his fifties. That's something he's got to address. Is he going to run his whole life? You've written unsympathetic and complicated characters before. John Harper is, is nothing if he's not um, a complicated and unsympathetic character. Although, I have to admit, you know, I, we, again, we're not going to give anything of the story away, but, you know, I really wanted him to... I wanted them to get away. I really wanted him to succeed. Obviously, it's more interesting writing about unsympathetic characters, but it's also, it's also a risk, isn't it? It's a very high-risk strategy. I mean, the, the comment I've had from other writers that pleased me most so far is Gillian Slovo, um, very fine novelist and screenwriter. She said, I came to root for Harper while still hating what he did. And I was very pleased about mm-hmm. that because that is exactly what I was aiming for. I'm obviously not asking any reader to endorse um, the terrible thing he does in the 1960s during the massacres. But I think that we're on a very slippery slope if we try and convince ourselves that monstrous things are only done by monsters. Mm-hmm. The truth is monstrous things are done by ordinary men who then go home and are kind to their widowed mothers. And we've seen that during every war. We've we've seen every man who's done a terrible thing excuse himself by saying he was following orders. And men who would normally be decent, upright citizens doing terrible things during eras of civil conflict. And I think it's much more challenging for us as human beings to come across that thought and to be confronted by it, that if there was civil war in the UK, you know, who knows how we'd all behave. But you're absolutely right in that it's a high-risk strategy in terms of the reader's sympathy. And I had the same problem with Yvonne and to a lesser extent with Laura in Whatever You Love. Yvonne in Apple Tree Yard is a woman who has what we can loosely call a knee trembler with a complete stranger in the House of Parliament in Chapter 1 of the novel. Now, I knew that when I wrote that scene, a lot of people would close the novel at that point. But what I was inviting readers to say is, yes, Yvonne is a woman who steps out of line. But actually, the punishment she receives for that is surely disproportionate to the wrong she has actually done. Um, With Harper, I hope I'm inviting the reader to say, yes, you know, what he does during the massacres is terrible, but given his background, given his training, given the political economic situation of the time, can any of us really say we are incapable of behaving that way ourselves? And I think if you want to raise those questions as a novelist, you have to take the risk of creating an unsympathetic character and in the full knowledge that there will be some readers who can't go there with you. But to me, to have characters that were simply black or white, it, it just wouldn't be interesting, it wouldn't be intellectually challenging for me. Just one more question from me then, and then we'll get you to read a bit. Most of your books are about different subjects. You change, you know, you go off in different directions. But first of all, would you say there was anything that was similar across them? I mean, is there any preoccupations that you have that follow from one to another? I think... Really, the kind of material we've been talking about, moral dilemmas, 
and moral ambiguity and the idea that if you do a bad thing out of haplessness or because you don't really realise it's bad, is it as bad as somebody who does the same bad thing out of pure evil? Because <laughs> the harm that is done for the person who's the recipient of the bad thing is exactly the same. Um, but does motive matter? Does it? Can you excuse yourself? And also, I think, possibly, a lot of my books are a plea for us all to be less judgmental, and in particular, less judgmental about other unfamiliar sorts of people. <laughs> There's a quotation at the beginning of my fourth novel, Fires in the Dark, which is a Holocaust novel, from the American philosopher Richard Rorty, which is something like, solidarity is achieved not by the intellect, but by the imagination from the realisation that the pains and humiliation of other unfamiliar sorts of people are the same as our own. And he went on to say that he thought that acts of the imagination, novels, TV dramas, films, are, I think he used the phrase, the principal vehicles of moral change and progress. <laughs> now, obviously, that's a very grandiose claim for any novelist to make, and I'm not sure I would make it for my work. But I think it's a very high ambition, it's a very lofty ambition. And nothing has pleased me more than the letters I occasionally get from readers saying, I've never thought about this. I mean, somebody wrote to me once after reading Fires in the Dark, I, I never knew about the Romanis being killed in the Second World War, and I've always been very dismissive of the travellers that live at our end of our road. But I'll try and think more now about other people's lives and what they may have been through. I mean, hooray, how wonderful was that and what a, what a great compliment that was. And I think if someone reads my book and learns something about Indonesia but also is forced to challenge their own attitudes, their own attitudes towards race, their own attitudes towards politics, I can't think of anything a greater ambition than to do that with the proviso that my primary duty is to entertain people and keep them reading at the risk of... I don't want to sound too po-faced. I don't want people to sound as though it's eating your greens when you read my books. I do try and entertain. I do try and make them page-turners. But to get that kind of message of human solidarity through a story, that's my loftiest ambition. And just a quick addendum to that last question. So... Do you know where you're going next yet? Ooh, I, just in case my publishers listen, I better not tell you. I actually have three ideas on the go. I'm in an unusual position. Normally at this stage, I'm set on which book I'm writing next. I have two ideas that I've written a chunk of both. I have a third idea that's sort of bubbling under. And I kind of want to write them all at once, but that would be really, really unwise. So I'll, if you come back to me in about three months, I'll have settled on one of them. But at the moment, it's all to play for. So if you would uh, read us a little bit from Blackwater, that would be delighted. Um, this is from the very opening of the book, and it's where we find Harper alone in his hut in Indonesia in the middle of the night. He woke every night at the same time, the small hours, when it was darkest. His upper torso jerked, his eyes opened, his hand flailed for the lamp on the bedside table but met the impediment of the mosquito net. It took a moment or two to lift the net and find the switch on the base of the lamp. Then he would sit upright, breathing heavily, absorbing the paradox of having woken so hot that he was damp and cold. The electricity supply was unreliable during the day, but at night the light came on immediately. The net was made of tough, opaque cotton and surrounded the bed. It was like being in a tent, outside, out there. The blood would rush in his ears so loudly that he could hear nothing else for a moment or two. He would breathe deeply, trying to still his heart and listening, then remind himself that he was not out there, 
but in a large and comfortable hut with ornate wooden doors and a rectangular block held in thick brackets barring them shut. The hut was halfway up the hillside, but the sounds of the rushing Ayung River filled the valley, the clamour and clamber of water over boulders. The rainy season had ended late that year, and the river was still full. Night did something odd to the sounds around the hut. It was hard to tell how far or close they were, the scud and scramble of squirrels across his roof, the thump of something heavier, a monkey perhaps, also on the roof. Or was it on the veranda? The veranda would creak on occasion. It was supported by tall stilts and so impossible for anyone, or anything, to walk across it without making a noise. Sometimes he thought he heard a light scratching at the base of the wooden door. A river rat, perhaps? Did they come this far up the hill at night? He had seen several of them on his walks along the valley, black and quick, lolloping between the fat green leaves of undergrowth. At other times he would think, yes, there's definitely a creature on the roof. He would listen to the claw scratchings above him become more regular and the script script would turn into a pit-pit pause, pit-pit-pit, which blossomed into the sound of rain. The clamour mounted rapidly then, until it was so deafening even the river became inaudible, water drowned beneath water. In daylight hours he liked to stand on the veranda and watch the rain, a wall of it so solid it seemed to fly upwards as well as down. In daylight it was beautiful, as long as you didn't have to go out in it. But during the hours of darkness the torrent closed the world down, masked all other noises. There was nothing but rain. So I've been talking to Louise Doty. We've been talking about her latest novel, which is Blackwater. It's out now from Faber and Faber. Louise, thank you so much for coming in and telling me about it. Thank you. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.